It's Monday, January 29th, 2018, and you're listening to The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, here with my co-host Paige May. Before we dive into episode 40, we'd like to thank our Lit Review sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by the Critical Studies MA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Because we need to talk, read, interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu. We'd also like to thank the ARCA Center for Social Justice Leadership, an initiative out of Kalamazoo College, whose mission is to develop and sustain leaders in human rights and social justice through education and capacity building. In this episode, we'll be speaking with radical authors, parents, and professors Toussaint Lossier and Dan Berger, co-authors of the new book, Rethinking the American Prison Movement. The book provides a short, accessible overview of the transformational and ongoing struggles against America's prison system. Dan and Toussaint show that prisoners have used strikes, lawsuits, uprisings, writings, and diverse coalitions with free world allies to challenge prison conditions and other kinds of inequality. Finally happening. It's finally happening. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. All right, you're listening to the Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, and I'm here with Toussaint Lozier and Dan Berger. And we're gonna be joined by Paige May very shortly. She's on LSD right now, Lakeshore Drive, not the yeah, actual. I was say, <laughs> people do that. I'm always like, I always text me I'm like, Wait, you're like, she's on what? Chris? She's where? Okay, so Paige will be joining us very shortly. Um, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, the first question we usually ask our guests is who you are, what do you do, and why? Uh, and I'm going to throw it to Dan to get us started. Great. Well, thanks so much for having us. Uh, my name is Dan Berger. I am a, um, uh, I guess my, my day job is a professor of comparative ethnic studies and history at the University of Washington, Basel. Um, I also am a parent and I'm someone who has been doing prisoner support and prison abolition work for about 20 years. And why do you do it? Oh, why? Well, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what else is there to do? Why not? Um, I, I, I think <laughs> I was um, fortunate enough to be, uh, to, to sort of get into activism and, and political work as a teenager in high school and, um, was unfortunate enough to to move to a pretty uh, conservative suburb uh, not long after. Um, and so the people who really became my uh, mentors in activism and history were long-term political prisoners, um, several of whom are, are still incarcerated, and kind of through them met a, a larger kind of network of people and, and, a, and a larger movement history. Um, and so I feel like that's um, that that's just sort of been part of my political DNA since I was, you know, sixteen. Um, and even though that that didn't start out of any particular interest in prison per se, it, it became clear pretty soon that that no discussion or no consideration of our movements and our movement history uh, is complete without engaging centrally with prison uh, and and with with the state. Um, that the sort of prison 
becomes the kind of clearest expression of. Um, and so I, I think for me, it was, you know, kind of a, a, a longer mentorship experience um, through prison and the larger world of prison um, that, that, yeah, what, what else would I be doing? That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like we've been trying to get you on the show for like a year now or maybe like since the podcast started. Uh, and I'm really excited that you're here with us. And I feel like I've seen your name like so much out there and like, you know, uh, high regards from Miriam Kaba about you. And so it's just like uh, and, and my partner, Debbie's also a huge fan. And, and, you know, finally getting a chance to talk to you. I'm like, wow, you're so nice. You're just so like easygoing and so like chill. OK, uh, so thank you. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> uh, and then we're here with Toussaint. So mm -hmm. do you want to say who you are, what do you do, and why? I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, my right. name's Toussaint Lossier. Um, uh, what's the next, what was the next? <laughs> See, I, I said I was going to do it. Toussaint said, Toussaint's like waking up right now. Still waking up. Did we get um, you the coffee? Yes, you did. Coffee. I'm working right. on it. Um, <laughs> nursing it at the moment. Um, so who, who you I are, am. what do you do, and why? So um, uh, similar, um, Similar to Dan, I am a parent as well as um, an assistant professor of African-American studies in the W.B. Du Bois Department of African-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. It's sort of my uh, day job as well. Um, and then uh, I also have been doing um, activism and organizing for a while. I don't know if it's been 20 years, dude. I'm not going to put myself up there. I'm going to be like maybe 15. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's been I'm longer younger, than that. I'm, young, I'm the younger <laughs> one. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I, I think I'm the youngest one, and I've been doing this for 10 years. So you got to. Right, somewhere in the middle. So you're between at 10 like, and 20, you know, 50 yeah. years of yeah, organizing. Yeah. <laughs> not, not 50 years. Um, and I think I, I can't quite, ex you know, I'm still trying to get better at answering the question of exactly why. Um, uh, but I think for, for a while, I, one of the things that's, um, for a long period of time as an organizer and as an act, well, as an activist and then later as an organizer, I think the question of, um, prisons and more broadly mass incarceration, um, maybe the other way around, um, seemed to be a fundamental question of trying to understand, um, kind of what this current moment in history is all about mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. both in terms of you know prisons as a as a sort of space of um you know captivity and unfreedom right in a moment where mm -hmm. we're supposed to be living in the land of the free supposedly mm -hmm. but also in terms of understanding how um the sort of explosion in terms of forms of incarceration that's taken place over the past um 30, 40 years or what have you, mm -hmm. has, is, is the, like, I think is one of the crucial questions that needs to be wrestled with in terms of understanding how, like, social and political movements have developed in the U.S. Um, kind of post, in the post-civil rights era mm -hmm. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so um, it always kind of bothered me that that, that that question seemed to be more at the margins and rather at the center. And one of the things that's been so exciting by having an opportunity to work with Dan is not only is he a nice person, as you said earlier, <laughs> but um, I think this is um, this working on uh, the research and writing of this project with him has been a wonderful opportunity to get clarity mm -hmm. and really tr for both 
I think, personally for us, mm -hmm. as well as to try to communicate it out more broadly to the general public mm -hmm. about how can we understand the ways in which um, uh, the movements that have come up and been beaten back in some ways um, have been, um, that struggle has been directly caught up in the way in which the prison system has expanded. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At least from the, uh, I, I think there's something like fundamentally important about having a, a clear sense of history and a clear sense of um, uh, kind of where we are. And it's odd because I feel like when I've tried to, t when I taught, there's sometimes where I always get this, I don't know if this happens to you, Dan, but I get this, there's this dynamic where I'll say like, this is what I study. And people are like, oh, that's so depressing. That's so sad. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, like, I feel better being in a position to to have a greater understanding mm -hmm. of why these things are the way they are mm -hmm. rather than be like, oh, everything's fine and dandy and let me not pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I know things are messed up. Let me try to better understand why things are messed up. And it's the struggle to better understand that things in that way mm -hmm. that makes me feel actually better than just being like, I don't know why these things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. And Toussaint, I also remember the first time I met you mm -hmm. officially. Do you remember? It was at, it was up north. It was at a house. See, now how am I going to, how am I supposed <laughs> to answer that question? Like, am I going to be like, no, it was a complete non-event. So... You were helping Sorry. us prep. You were helping us prep for uh, the We Charge Genocide, the yes, UN trip. Yes, I do and remember that. I do. Of, yes. I, I, I very much remember that. All of the delegates. I were think there. I was also late to that meeting as you well. You were. <laughs> <laughs> but it's we, like we, I had to drive okay. all the way it's to the right. other side of the road because it was also in Rogers Park. Yes. Oh my God, it's full circle. Oh. Uh, but you just like coached us and helped us. Uh, you know, for those that aren't familiar, we we charged genocide. We did a a, a trip um, delegation to the United. Nations to you know basically charge Chicago and, and, and the U.S. with genocide against young people of color in Chicago, and uh, it was it was it was wild. It was it was something, and and yeah, I just remember you coaching us through that, and it was a really powerful experience, especially because you were another name that I've like heard so much and like you know heard so much badass organizing coming out of, and and then I met you and you were nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I was you know I was actually about to say the same thing. I was like, do you remember the first time? I remember the first time that I no. <laughs> No, but it was a really good. It was a really good experience, and I remember, um, you know, I'm very much impressed with the work that you all did with We Charge Genocide, and then it was a real honor to have an opportunity to kind of uh, facilitate the report back that you all mm -hmm. did in Chicago mm -hmm. afterwards. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so let's jump into this book. So the book is called Rethinking the American Prison Movement by you and Dan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, just walk us through, you know, what's, what is the whole, uh, what are you trying to get at with this book? Um, walk us through it. How do the chapters break down? You know, just, just go in. Yeah, so uh, Toussaint nominated me to, to start on this one. But I, I think that um, the book is, is trying to be a kind of accessible uh, overview of, uh, of the history of the prison movement, right? Uh, throughout the 20th century and, and into the present. Uh, it's pretty short, so it, it packs a lot uh, in there, but, I, but it, we start with um, the, the, the opposition to convict, or the rise of convict leasing and, and chain gangs uh, sort of after the end of Reconstruction and the opposition to that um, through different moments of um, fighting political repression of anarchist, communist, socialist, feminists, black nationalists, uh, and others. Um, and, and sort of follow that thread through um, 
into the present. I think part part of what what the book is trying to do, right? The, the prison movement, perhaps more than most other social movements, is is episodic, right? That that many of the people who really constitute <clears throat> the movement and, and some of the key figures really are disconnected from each other. The organizations come and go in response to the the um, the kind of prevailing modes of punishment and repression at that time period. And so it's not, uh, you know, there are all these really brilliant books and, uh, you know, a number of which you guys have profiled on the podcast about, you know, the black freedom struggle or other social movements where we could see like, oh, well, this person knew that person. And, you know, we can sort of tell the, the longer scope going back. And, you know, in, in some ways that exists in the prison movement, but really the the kind of repression of different radical organizations and radical movements means that the prison movement has has kind of had to to reinvent itself um, through you know at different moments and so certainly what's happening in the early 20th century is pretty disconnected from what's happening you know organizationally in in the mid 20th century um, so the book tries to tries to sort of um, apply a kind of coherent narrative and and you know identify some of the key, uh, actors and, and movements or, or events and you know uprisings and, and campaigns that um, that have really helped us understand what prison is right and how how fundamentally it is tied to um, both you know racism and, and anti-blackness in particular uh, as well as kind of anti-radicalism uh, in U.S. history and I, th- I think what one of the things that that I really appreciated and I really learned from the book. Um, you know, like, like what you were saying earlier, Tucson, about how, how good it was to kind of do this, this dive back into, uh, into prison throughout the 20th century, is really just learning, you know, and, and coming away with that there are different models of prison, right? And that the prison is not this static institution. And so one of the things that we spend a lot of time on in the book is, you know, this idea of prison managerialism, right? That, that the way that prisons are run, right? The way that prisons are managed changes over time. And that seems like kind of a boring point, but I think it's really important to see, like, if we're fighting prisons, we have to know what kind of prison we're fighting against. Uh, and so, you know, there was a time when the main function of prisons in this country was to extract free labor and, and profit from the labor that prisons are doing. That's not the main function of prisons now and hasn't been the main function of prisons in this kind of era of mass incarceration. And so I think one of the key things for me about this is like looking at how the movement has changed in response to how prisons are actually run in a given time period. So you're saying that so this book here, which you said is not very big, is really covering like the origin? Uh, no, I mean, you know, Ouch. you, you, like, you said, like it's a, you said like it's a small it's, book. I, he said that. I oh, you said, said it was a small book. I think the so. type is fantastically small. I'm just like, oh, yo, wow. It, yeah, it is really I'm small. I'm like, they could have, the book could have been small. like double the length if they had like <laughs> legit, if they had like regular person, if they had Harry Potter size font, <laughs> right? That could have been, you know, would have been double the size. So you're, so you're, you're talking about the origin of prisons. You're talking about uh, prisons in the 1940s, 1960s. You're talking about prison rebellions. You're talking about, you're, you're covering you know, so much it's, in this. It's book. funny because I remember when Dan and I first start sat down to do this, and I was like, okay, we're gonna write a history of the prison movement. And Dan's like, actually, we're gonna try to write a history of like. The, the ways in which people have struggled around prisons mm-hmm. 
from basically since the end of slavery. And I was like, okay. And then the book kind of also became a history of how, and as Dan was just sort of saying, how prisons have been run. So it's kind of like, I kind of feel like we we sort of were like, you know, this book is a, it's called Rethinking the American Prison Movement because it's part of a series on rethinking uh, or kind of updating our analysis, our understanding of different social movements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like at some point somebody's going to be like, well, you didn't do what you were, like you did, like we were, we're sort of the students in class who like we took the assignment and then we kind of ran with it. We were like, okay, we'll write, we'll write your history of social movements, but we're also going to write a history of like how prisons have changed and transformed over time in dialogue, right, with those movements. Um, and also we're going to talk about the prison movement not as something that happened in like the 1960s and 70s, but something that has really this sort of long, uh, really kind of a long arc to it as well too, mm-hmm. right? Like you mm-hmm. can't understand, um, say, the Attica Rebellion without understanding how earlier moments in like earlier points of struggle um, shaped the way in which um, prisons operated as a site of struggle and also prisons changed, themse- changed themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't get, Attica just doesn't come out of anywhere. It comes mm-hmm. out of various different experiments with how, um, what, what would be the role of prisons within society more broadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And talk to us more about this prison managerialism because I've never heard this term before. What is what is What are you talking about? All right, Dan is pointing at me this time. So <laughs> prison managerialism, it was really interesting actually. We were sort of reading some of the earlier history and prison managerialism popped up in a book on a much thicker book on a much bigger book on um, uh, the relationships basically like what was the what was the role of prisons um, in American society from like the late 1800s all the way up through the early and mid 1900s Um, and um, prison managerialism was uh, was a was a term in the text as used to describe the way in which prisons, uh, as Dan was sort of saying, prisons were, um, prisons were being managed and um, it particularly was talking about it in the context of um, a moment in time where at the same time that you had a convict lease system in the South, you also had Northern prisons that didn't have as, um, you know, the, the system of, um, exploitation that took place, the processes of exploitation that took place within the prisons was not as um, brutal and um, uh, dehumanizing and exploitative as the, the system that existed in the South, but it was still terrible in its own regards, but also was uh, fantastically premised on exploiting the labor of prisoners, um, producing uh, goods for the market, and you had this really interesting struggle that develops over time between labor unions and uh, prison officials and state officials with unions basically saying like early labor unions basically trying to limit the amount of um, uh, goods that are being produced in prisons and al- ultimately get us to the point where today there's this sort of classic idea of like prisoners printing um, license plates and things like that that came out of this long series of stru- these series of struggles where labor unions were basically like you can't have this sort of unfree labor competing with our free world labor, right? Mm-hmm. Quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. And so um, back to the point, though, prison managerialism was used as a way of describing the sort of um, dynamics of how prisons are managed. And the thing that 
for us that was one of the things that was particularly insightful about it is it sort of premised the way in which prisons are run as um, like a there's there's a particular dynamic of how do you manage and administer an institution mm -hmm. that the terminology suggests and kind of invokes and um, on one level that has to do with the sort of large scale like um, function in society that prisons are playing, mm -hmm. whether that's around labor exploitation, whether that's around holding people captive, mm -hmm. things along those lines. Um, but I think it also has to do with the the way in which, um, like the the sort of control that prisons exert is not completely total, mm -hmm. and that there's a degree of almost kind of a bargain and negotiation that takes place between prisoners and prison administrators. And in some ways, uh, the prison movement has reflected that dynamic, mm -hmm. has reflected the way in which, like the, the forms of struggle that have been taken up, whether those are sort of large-scale rebellions, whether those are everyday forms of resistance, mm -hmm. and we try to track those um, at different moments and like kind of trace the history of their evolution and mm -hmm. the way they change, those forms of resistance, that, um, that in many ways the dynamics of resistance are caught up in... Um, trying to um, to shift the balance of power in some of those negotiations mm. and to exert sometimes greater concessions from um, prison administrators, sometimes to get the public's attention to exert um, greater, uh, to kind of intervene in the prison, um, the, the larger prison environment, mm -hmm. and sometimes to completely um, attempt to sort of do away with um, prisons altogether. But that there is a that it's it's important to kind of foreground the way in which to kind of understand prisons on their own terms, uh, to understand the institution of of the prison as an institution on its own terms, and to see that um, the the control of it, the management of, of the people who are being held captive, is something that not only shifts but is is predicated on um, not simply uh, dominating prisoners completely, but being able mm. to um, exert a sort of authority that um, relies on an implicit negotiation, an implicit sort of balance of power, however unequal, between those who are the keepers and those who are held captive. Mm, mm, mm. Tucson and I, you know, both both come out of the kind of abolitionist uh, wing or whatever, <laughs> abolitionist tendency of, of anti-prison movements. Um, but it was important to us to, to really think about the prison movement as a movement, right? And like any movement, it has competing tendencies. Um, and, and so the book tries to look at, you know, the kind of four kind of main, main aspects of that, right? Being um, defense committees to, you know, free people from prison or stop them from being imprisoned once they've been arrested. Um, kind of legal campaigns to, you know, improve conditions or reform conditions, um, various kinds of, you know, resistance strategies to, to escape some of the, the, the most punitive aspects of, of prison, and then the kind of revolutionary challenges of which abolition would be, would be one, but certainly there are others throughout the history of, of the prison movement. Um, and I think you know, it's interesting that that prison can, the, the kind of spectrum of kind of liberal and reformist and revolutionary can be more muddled uh, there, right? People that can do, you know, legal reform challenges and also, you know, pursue armed struggle in the, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. 
Um, but but we really did want to think about like from the perspective of people who are incarcerated and who are organizing, like how do how do they understand and craft a movement? And I think that just sort of put put the whole spectrum of activities that Toussaint was talking about kind of as a as a through line that you could see throughout the whole 20th century and into the present. And Dan, you're also the um, the author of Captive Nation, Black Prisons, uh, Prison Organizing in the Civil Rights Era. How does this book differentiate from um, uh, that book? And like, wh- are there, is there any overlap or are there things that you included in this book that you wish would have been included in the in Captive Nation? Yeah, so <clears throat> excuse me, Captive Nation is a, is a look at the role that prison and prisoners played in the black liberation struggle in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, that looks a lot at California, but not entirely at California, um, and looks at, at George Jackson um, and the kind of orbit around George Jackson um, uh, in, in that time period. And so certainly that's, you know, that, that story is, um, is told in, in Rethinking the American Prison Movement as well. Um, I think that this is a, even though it's a shorter book than Captain Nation, um, it's a, it covers a much longer uh, historical time period, um, and so there's there are, there are a number of things that Captain Nation goes into more detail about from the sixties and seventies that that this book kind of has to treat more in passing, um, but this book covers a lot more a lot more ground and and um, both historically, but also geographically, right? That there are um, examples from sort of uh, prison rebellions and and prison movements, um, you know, in the South. Toussaint draws a lot on his research on Illinois and the Pontiac Brothers case and the Marion um, organizing uh, against the Marion Control Unit and elsewhere. Um, So this book kind of gives a much more, a much more kind of national scope of things. Whereas mm-hmm. Captive Nation, you know, my argument there was that the kinds of dynamics that were happening, particularly in California in the 60s and 70s, were happening all over the country. Um, and the kinds of insights that prisoners were developing, particularly on the connections between prisons and slavery, were, you know, were ha- had national and, and global implications. Um, but But this book actually is able to explore that a little bit more in the... The longer arc of history. Okay, so hey everybody, it's Paige. I'm here an hour <laughs> late. What? Um, and I'm talking to Dan. I have a quick heart. question before you leave. <laughs> um, so I know you have to go, but I okay. So having just jumped into the conversation and not knowing what you've said already, I'm wondering. So my pers- from my perspective of what little I know about prison movements, and I'm really excited to have folks come on to talk about your other book. Um, I wonder. I constantly am in awe of how folks are still able to resist and find find ways to resist in such a controlling environment that is that is able to adapt repressively with more permission than a lot of other parts of our world if that makes sense so i'm just wondering like what how does i don't know what the even the question but just like can you speak to that just like what do you do when when your hunger strike they can force feed you now right like what 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 is how are folks finding ways to still resist in a place where they'll like shove food down your mouth does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, and I'd love to hear Toussaint's take on this as well, but I, I think for me, and, and this is beyond the scope of, of, of the book per se, but just like in my time doing like prisoner support work, I feel like it, it's it's a tremendous validation of the human spirit, right? Like the ways that 
that prisons are constantly finding ways to like repress and isolate people, right? And new new ways, like unimagin things that were unimaginable five years ago are happening now, right? Um, or things things that were unimaginable maybe ten years ago, right, are happening now. Um, the the unimaginable does take a while, right? But but still, right? Like prisons are kind of constantly able to to adapt in that way, and people are are constantly able to to sort of adapt in response, right? So I think, and and I know Jason has has his own stories of this too, but like interviewing people, right, I was interviewing somebody who talked about like how they they locked him up next to the TV and he really hate, hated the TV and it was loud and it was annoying and he couldn't do his reading and he couldn't do what he, do, what he wanted to do. And so he like took all these like pen caps and like broke apart his pen and attached the paper clip to it and like figured out this kind of ingenious way to like reach out of the cell and around to like turn off the TV. Um, like in in Pennsylvania, Russell Maroon Schultz is a former member of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, who's who was in solitary for over twenty years and in the seventies had had escaped from prison two times, you know, had had organized study groups, right, in isolation, right, where people are like shouting through through the vents to each other, even though they can't can't see each other, right? Or in in Captive Nation, I talk about how you know prisoners figured out that they could. Um, flush the toilet, and that would create a, a tunnel, the way that the, the plumbing in, in prison was arranged. So when they flush the toilet, it creates a tunnel that they can use to talk to people in the tier below them. So all of these kinds of examples of like little little forms of creativity. Okay, one of I think it was um, Victoria, was it? I think so, I think Victoria Law talked about the same story. Passing notes. Passing notes. Like, yeah. It, like it, and the spinning something like that yeah there's a, there's a podcast i think it's um sorry that some they were talking about um it's a solitary confinement prison in somalia i believe and they this guy he he they taught they developed their own version of morse code only knowing that morse code was a thing but not knowing how to do it um and so they made their own and he he tapped letter by letter the entire what's that book Anna the big book that's like a russian Anna care Anna karena yeah, Anna yeah, Karenna. Yeah. Like letter by letter, he tapped that as and like, and it changed his relationship to his wife. It's anyways, yeah, just like the ways that folks and it's not always like an advancement of technology. Sometimes, there's, but there's just yeah. Anyways, thank you. And you know, and I think it's it's not to overly romanticize that as in and of itself liberation, right, or in and of itself freedom, but but it is I think a, a remarkable a remarkable thing that that prisons are constantly trying to innovate repression. And people are constantly innovating sociality, right? They're they're constantly innovating ways of of talking with each other and communicating with each other. Um, and I think that's why that sense that that you know Toussaint and I kind of started with about how we, how you need to really know that like the prison that exists now, right? Like what wh how are prisons functioning now? Because you have to fight the prison that exists and not the prison that existed ten years ago or fifty years ago, um, because precisely because that kind of interplay right of, of repression and resistance is so so live and so constant well i'm so sorry that you have to go now but i'm so glad we made this work yeah. i'm so happy thank you so much dan for joining yeah, us I'm really honored to be here now just us and the fbi for those that are listening <laughs> our laptop is just open and so now Tucson says it's just us now no more dan but the fbi is here <laughs> FBI with FBI us so hey us. fuck you <laughs> Tucson, are you awake? Did the coffee work? Is it yeah, good? Yeah, coffee's, coffee's kicking in. Yeah. Okay, okay, good, good. Was, last night was a little bit too lit, so that's the. This is the. This is dealing with the. Uh, 
the. Wait, what did you do last night? No, no. I, Why no, were we you know invited? What I did? Where did we Actually, go? <laughs> no, I'll tell you what I did because I and not we don't have too much time, so I'm not gonna go into it too deep. But I had a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a little while, and uh, we hung out last night. We've been going through some things. Like, I don't know if you have close friends, and sometimes you're you're feeling good, sometimes you're not. And so this was us kind of like clearing the air, mm. and um, uh, he cleared the air by bringing over a bottle of rum shot glasses and turning on this little like uh, Super Nintendo system that's out now where if you buy it it comes with all these different games on it so he said we're going to play Street Fighter 2 Turbo and every time you die you have to take a shot so we played Street Fighter for like we killed the bottle the bottle was pretty much done and I'm you know I'm not I'm not like I'm working on my ego, so I just want to say <laughs> that I got whooped in Street Fighter. I hadn't played in a while. Like, my thumb is sore. Like, I'm, hung, I'm a little hungover because I got whooped a bunch of times. Like, I didn't quite remember how to do all the, like, how do you my do it? Yeah, how do you do a Hadouken? Like, I couldn't remember how to do all the, like, I had a little bit of muscle memory, but not, like, some of the combos weren't as fresh. So, um it was good, though, because we commiserated. He said his stuff. He said what was on his mind. I said what was on my mind. You know, we got we, we, we got to a better place. But unfortunately, my, my, uh, my head and my thumb in particular are still getting to a better place. So. What, what, are, what is one part in this book that you're super proud of? Like, what are you really just, like, happy that you included in this book? Sure. Um, something that – and I feel like this is sort of a repeat question from our – conversation the other night but mm-hmm. you know what, what is something in here that we don't often hear the story of um, okay. that you're super excited about can I name a couple things yes because you just said one and I was like well actually um, Two. So, one, so one thing I like about the book is we make a real we make a real uh, one of the things that I really like about the book is we made a strong effort to include um, as much as there's a focus on the sort of everyday forms of resistance the protests the rebellions there's also a lot in there on the um, the legal cases mm-hmm. that um, uh, that um, make that help to constitute the way in which prisons function, and I think that's important because um, one, in a general sense, unless you are committed to like studying the law as a as a as a layperson, you really don't know the law, right? You kind of have a sense of how the law is supposed to work, but you don't know it. And um, uh, I think for those of us who are concerned with questions of state violence or how the state operates, there is something to knowing how the law is used and interpreted because the law is supposed to be, and it's not always, right, but it's supposed to be the, the, the rules upon which the state functions. And if you think about the pr- prison not only as a repressive institution but as a legal institution, uh, there, are, it's important, I think, to have a sense of how um, the the way the law works shapes the way in which prisons uh, prisons have um, have changed over time. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, you know, uh, there's a sort of school of thought that links um, uh, the war on drugs, like links mass incarceration directly to the war on drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like, for instance, Love Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow, great book. One of the things that that book takes as its, as its premise is the, the New Jim Crow is a function of how the war on drugs has led us to mass incarceration, right? Um, and wh- we don't really talk about the war on drugs that much in this book. Um, and 
I and I think and Dan, <laughs> Dan and I are uh, kind of of a school of thought that it's really as important as it is to understand how the drug war has got us to mass incarceration. It's also important to understand how the movements, um, and particularly the movements like uh, the, the social movements that are trying to change the status quo, but especially radical social movements, but especially the prison movement, have led us to mass incarceration. And um, building on some of our own research is as well as some of the more recent scholarship, you know, we, there's actually in, um, some ways in which we're able to detail how prison administrators who saw what took place in California with George Jackson built prisons, uh, George Jackson as being one example of prisoner organizing and radical social movement activity and really efforts to use the prisons as a, as a kind of um, a base for broader kind of revolutionary struggle took that example and then designed prisons that were premised upon how to prevent another George Jackson from being similarly influential. And um, that's not to say that it's, it's the, it's the uh, wave of struggle that's associated with uh, kind of George Jackson and other forms of prisoner organizing that happened during the late 60s and early 1970s that, that got us to mass incarceration, but that... Um, I would argue, and Dan and I would argue, that it's important <laughs> to understand, as important as it is to understand how the war on drugs got us to mass incarceration and 2.3.4 million people behind bars, it's equally, if not more important, to understand how that explosion in incarceration is in some ways a form of a ba it's a backlash to those earlier movements, mm -hmm. not just in terms of the number of people behind bars, but the way that they're isolated, the way in which they're um, uh, prevented, you know, denied opportunities to um, organize collectively, um, to access, you know, kind of uh, the broader public or uh, the legal system, that those changes have come in direct response to an earlier wave of struggle. And that, um, as it might seem kind of dispiriting in some ways, but it's important to see how, um, to, to appreciate the fact that, you know, there was, there was a earlier wave of struggle that was lost in some ways, and the consequences of that have been the, um, the really the ways in which prisons have kind of functioned in different ways, kind of, in our current society function in different ways in terms of dealing with problems of, you know, uh, um, isolating and holding uh, captive people who are, um, are unemployed um, for um, mediating different social conflicts and what have you, but it also kind of comes, there's a, there's a political nature to mass incarceration and it comes in response to this early wave of struggle. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, sort of in to, as a follow-up around that, like, the, the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago, Mariam Kaba ran this blog called Prison Culture, mm -hmm. and there was an article, or a, a post that she wrote, mm -hmm. I forget what it was titled, but it caused a lot of debate, and mm -hmm. I still think about it, and something about how, like, we need white people going to jail right now, mm -hmm. not black people mm -hmm. around, like, mm -hmm. through direct action. Mm -hmm. And I, I, at the time, I remember thinking a lot about how, like, you know, the civil rights movement, you have, uh, my favorite documentary is called The Children's March, and mm -hmm. it's about, um, for about a week, you have all these kids going to jail in mm. Birmingham, mm. 
um, uh, for kneeling mm. um, at in front of the, uh, the the town hall or whatever. City the county hall. like clerk's office. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I, in the documentary, you hear like they talk about how you know they would be joking about like, oh, I, I'm going to jail today. I got my and they'd bring like their their curlers, mm. like their tooth, like they'd bring all this stuff, mm. and it became this thing. Um, and you can't do that anymore, right? Mm. And so like, what uh, you know, it's important to study that history, but like, what has changed mm. about prisons that makes I think that there's still a necessity for civil disobedience mm. and 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 for that and for Black folks to be mm. you know leading that, mm. um, but it's it's so different now mm. um, and I don't know what our ex how are, how have our expectations changed mm. to match the the current conditions because it's 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 built it's designed now to contain that mm. right um, and that, so I, I don't know if there, that's more that you want to say uh, or if that's even tied to the book. Well, I mean, I, I do also want to at the same time that I that 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 was one part of the book that I think was really important to, to kind of um, to lift up that and we we sketched this out a, a bit but I think um, the events have taken place kind of have really sort of borne this out in a way that um, might have made it uh, like deserve their own time and attention but um, we're really in a sort of new wave of struggle in terms of prisons um, uh, in terms of prisoner organizing mm-hmm. um, and prisoner organizing in the context of a kind of m- mass incarceration sort of warehouse mode of prison managerialism and um, I think it's in, I think the the primary thing that's lacking from that movement is real public awareness and appreciation of the um, uh, and attention to what's taking place behind bars mm-hmm. and um, if anything kind of our hope with this book is that this really provides an opportunity, not necessarily for somebody to be as historically adept as possible in terms of understanding, um, you know, the sort of forms of prisoner organizing in the 18, 1890s and 19, early 1900s. Like, that would be great, right? But it's more so to kind of open the conversation more broadly and to give folks a very informed perspective in terms of how to understand what's taking place now. Does the, so the book, it seems like it ends in 1998, is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So can you say more about what's been going on since you've already lifted up two mm-hmm. campaigns? What else uh, um, has, I know when I first started organizing, it was uh, Pelican Bay was yep. happening. So yep. can you talk about other sort of like highlights, both in terms of the spectacle, but also I remember when Victoria was on, she was talking about how like a lot of it looks like mm. pushing cases, right? Like, le- mm. like, le- like it doesn't have to be, you know. Yeah, big scale thing. Um, so... Um, we touch on this a bit more in the conclusion than we do in terms, like it really deserves its own chapter or sort of own, own book really, but um, the um, uh, hunger strikes that took place in California, mm-hmm. I think are, are uh, particularly important that s- directly pinpointed um, uh, solitary confinement, long-term soli- solitary confinement as um, a, um, as an issue that needed to not just be sort of accepted by prisoners in the wider public, uh, despite its horrendous abuses, its designation as a form of torture um, uh, by you know international jurists and what have you, but um, really taking that as as an opportunity to kind of wage a broader struggle that I think at one point had uh, tens of thousands of prisoners across the state. Um, participating in this kind of coordinated hunger strike. And it actually resulted in some changes to correctional policy. Um, and 
was, um, I think, inspirational for a lot of folks around the country. Um, beyond that, in Georgia, in the mid-2000s, there was a series of protests that took place within the Georgia prison system around conditions behind bars. Um, and then one of the things that's been really exciting is that um, the dynamic of what happened in Georgia was really exemplary of how there's been these moments of uh, both spontaneous rebellion as well as pretty concerted organizing um, in, a, in Alabama, as in Florida we mentioned earlier, in Texas, um, which um, kind of runs in contrast to the sort of history that we present and that a lot of the focus of organizing in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of the attention is on places like California, New York, right? Places that are understood to be kind of pretty liberal um, uh, parts of the country. And in many ways, the kind of um, the hub of where a lot of the um, prisoner organizing uh, that's really pushing the movement forward at this moment in time, the hub of that is really in the South. Um, and part of that has to do with the way in which the, 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 the last round of prison building and kind of building up mass incarceration um, focused a lot on um, uh, southern parts of the country. So when you had kind of post the 1996 crime bill and um, really increased federal funding and financing for prison construction, that a lot of that, um, the benefits of that were reaped by southern state officials who might not have had the state budgets to build prisons as broadly as might have been they might have wanted to, and they kind of benefited from the sort of federal largesse. And um, I think there's a really innovative um, approach to organizing that, that that folks are taking up um, in um, the broad sweep of those of those states. The other thing is there's also been a fair amount of um, struggle, particularly spontaneous struggle around immigrant detention and um, immigrant detention facilities. I think uh, it's important to recognize how much um, there's been an, a kind of mini mass incarceration boom around immigrant detention that's come directly in the wake of the 2006-2007 um, uh, May Day protests that have not only cracked down um, on folks who are undocumented, but have also put, you know, put the federal government in a position where it's needing, it's seeking to hold larger and larger numbers of people. And as much as um, uh, prison, um, privatized prisons are not a real feature of the landscape in the sort of state and federal prison systems that um, a, a significant number of the prisons that have been uh, used now to hold captive those who are um, potentially facing deportation, um, a number of those facilities are actually run by um, uh, private companies. And that's the sort of real kind of front of the struggle in many ways around um, um, uh, private privatized prisons. Mic drop. Okay, so... We're at time, and I really want to thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, if you could close us out with your favorite passage from the book. Again, the name of this book is Rethinking the American Prison Movement. Um, that was Dan Berger and Toussaint Lossier. Um, and so we're going to close out with Toussaint um, saying any last words and then reading a uh, uh, favorite passage from the book. Yeah, I want to read this passage because I think it also speaks to something that um, is that's always kind of uh, – bothered me about um, how we sort of talk about and think about mass incarceration is that there's a way in which um, and 
kind of mo- helped was as a motivation in terms of writing this book. But there's a way in which we sort of live in a moment where, um, as much as um, the scale of the prison system has increased, mm-hmm. um, we talk about it less, mm-hmm. and we're less we're less attuned to it, or we think about it less. And um, part of what um, I I take that to mean is that part of the way the way the, way the system has worked is not only to like increase its size and prevalence and sort of legitimacy, but in particular to to kind of um, to shape the way that we think about um, the place of prisons in society. And I think legitimacy is probably, you know, the key point in terms of really walling off our ability to kind of not only question, but also kind of think about and be concerned about what is, what does this aspect of the sort of most overtly repressive aspect of uh, um, function or mm-hmm. place or um, part of the way in which the system operates, you know, what's it doing? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I'm going to speak to that. More than 40 years of mass incarceration has repressed even the idea that people who are or were in prison are themselves political actors. Mass incarceration has further naturalized the possibility of making policy without the people most directly affected by such decisions. Mass incarceration has also buried the history of the prison movement recounted in this book. Telling this history provides an opportunity to revisit the ways prisoners have intervened in conversations about prison reform and its limitations. Echoing across the generations, the voices remind all who listen that the people who have the most intimate knowledge of prisons are the best able to to determine what should be done about them. They also remind us that any conversation about prison is also a conversation about health care, urban politics, rural development, educational equity, sexual freedom, policing practices, workers' rights, and other matters of urgent concern. The future of the American prison movement is therefore bound up with its past, pursuing the central questions of humanity. Uh, in the early 1970s, the future of prisons was up for grabs. Liberals, conservatives, and radicals all battled over the future of American prisons. By the middle of the decade, the future of prisons seemed to promise both more rights and more punishment. Prisoners were mounting and winning a series of major legal challenges that would reshape their captivity. In particular, these cases would extend prisoner First Amendment rights and limit the power of building tenders and other forms of organized sexual abuse. Yet as the rise of control units and other forms of violence demonstrated, the implementation of reform was often bleak. As the scale and frequency of rebellion slowed, prisoners continued to press their claims through lawsuits and other kinds of protests. But they faced increasing isolation and administrative violence as the era of mass incarceration began. Dissident prisoners had to adapt their pursuit of justice to a new prison environment. another episode of the lit review a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement we are your co-hosts monica trinidad and paige may two chicago-based organizers special shout out to the lit review's very own sponsor the arcus center for social justice leadership out of kalamazoo college keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next monday same time same place want to hear about a specific book email us at the lit review chicago at gmail.com or find us on facebook and if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at LitReviewShy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.